We are going to be in Joel, the book of Joel, once more. This may be the last time we're there. We may finish this, um, may finish this book. I, I'm not entirely sure. But if you'll turn there to Joel chapter 3, and while you turn there, I will go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you again. God, for for this day and for your blessings, I thank you for this word. And God, I, I pray that um, as we go through this, as we look at your scriptures, that you would instill in us a, a deeper desire for them and for you, that we would have a hunger for your truth, a hunger for righteousness. God, that um, that this message would even bring that out of us. God, that it would it would give us a more of a desire to be in your word and to know what, what you have said through your prophets. God, both old and new, and I just pray, God, that, we would, that you would help us to understand this, help us to realize the glory of your salvation through this text. And God, that, I, that you would help me to become small, to be humble, but to be bold, God, and say what you need, what you want me to say, but that you would get the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Joel chapter 3. Quick review of what's been going on in the book of Joel. It started with, uh, with the devastation of the land, of hordes of locusts that completely devoured and destroyed everything. The fields were destroyed, the crops were destroyed, the food was completely destroyed even to the, par- to the point where there was nothing left that they could sacrifice. They didn't have food, they didn't have a grain offering, they didn't have a wine offering to even offer up to the Lord because it was all destroyed, utter desolation. And we saw the call to repentance of God's people. Remember, that was coming on God's people, this, this destruction was coming on his land, um, and it always starts there first. It's a chastisement. It's a, it's a judgment of sorts. And then we saw the call to repentance of the people of God. We saw what that would bring about. We learned that repentance demanded a change of the heart. It wasn't just a change of actions, but it, it's an inward change, one that your, your desires change. Your very thinking changes and turns to God. And the change on the inside would lead, that leads to the change on the outside. It's not the other way around. And then we saw the restoration of the land that repentance would bring. And God said he would restore what the locusts had eaten. And you remember there was an important principle in that. And that no matter what you've done, where you've been, What kind of devastation, chastisement, judgment God has brought on you, it is time, and there is time, for Him to restore that. He will bring back the blessings that He has, that He will give His people. And we saw Him do that. He restored what the locusts had eaten, which is an amazing thing. It looked completely hopeless, and He restored it. But then, in the last sermon, we saw something even greater than that restoration. We saw Joel standing between Moses and Jesus, 
claiming that there's something better coming, something better on the way. And he prophesies the one coming that will be better than the healed land, something better than the restored food and grain, the true sacrifice, the true sacrifice that they were lacking would be actually brought the first time with Christ. So Joel prophesies of the healed heart. He prophesies the one who is coming that will draw his people, that will change his people. And he prophesies, of course, that all this happens through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh, on God's people and regenerating them, making them born again, making them alive. And that brings us to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we'll see in this chapter continued imagery of the day of the Lord. Remember, the entire book of Joel has been about the day of the Lord. And we're going to see this continued imagery of the day of the Lord. We've seen it already realized in part, right? Even with the plague of locusts, we ha- that is a day of the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a fulfillment to a point of the prophecy of the day of the Lord. It was judgment. It was a picture of the judgment to come. And then we saw the restoration of what the locusts had destroyed, which is a picture of the blessings to come. And then we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was partly fulfillment of the day of the Lord. But now, in this last chapter, we will see Joel prophesy of the final day of the Lord. So let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. All right. So there's a few things that we kind of got to keep straight as we go through this. And this is going to be somewhat difficult, so pray for me. But we need to keep, it's important here to understand who is Israel. And this is a, it's actually for me been a difficult understanding throughout scriptures when the Bible talks of Israel. But if you back up to verse 232, it's important that we understand who is God's Who are God's people? 2.32, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. It is clear in verse 32, it is clear in the book of Acts, when it says this, the Spirit was pour, poured out on all flesh, and we see a variety of languages being spoken, it is clear who shall be saved, and it is not just Jews. I don't think anybody ever debates that fact, except maybe Jews, I don't know. Um, it goes on to say there will be salvation in Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And the Lord calls among the remnant. And what we need to understand is who is the remnant? And I hope to simplify this for our theology's 
sake for studying the Word of God in general, I hope to simplify this. Who is the remnant? The remnant are those who call upon the name of the Lord. But listen to this. The remnant are those of the true Israel of God. So we know Paul said that not all of Israel is Israel. And I'll just say this now, and I'll say it without apology. Nobody has ever become saved or been a child of God based on who their parents were or based on their heritage. One becomes a child of God in one way and one way only, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So the remnant are those of the true Israel of God whom God has written his law upon their hearts. And listen, the true Israel of God are those who are the faithful Israel of God. And here's, here's the key to this. Do you want to know who the faithful Israel of God is? Look back at all the Israelites. From the time that Israel existed, even before, all the way to Abraham until now, who was the faithful Israelites? There was one. His name is Jesus. That's why to be true Israel, you have to be in Christ. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not true Israel. But uh, the amazing thing is, even if you weren't born an Israelite, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been grafted in, you have been adopted as an Israelite. Why? Because the only true Israelite is Jesus Christ. And you are part of him. You are now one of, you can be named among God's people. And so it's important that we understand that the true Israel of God is Jesus. So it's made up, when we talk about Israel then, it's made up of those who put their faith in Jesus. Now, let's look at verse 2. The valley of Jehoshaphat. Later on, it's called the valley of decision. And this is an interesting Google search if you want to see what many people want to talk about with the valley of decision. Um, But it's not... Most of them are wrong. They're, they're misunderstanding who is making the decision. This is The picture is painted here as you read verse 2. Let's read it again. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. So the picture is painted that all the nations, herds of people, can you picture this? Whatever this valley is, all the nations are being gathered together, coming to this place. Just innumerable amounts of people coming together, brought into this valley. Turn over to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory 
and all the holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but his goats on the left. Jesus taught very clearly there is coming a day when the Lord will assemble, will assemble all nations for judgment. The term Valley of Jehoshaphat actually literally means the valley where God will judge. So what we're seeing here is this is not a valley where all, where all the nations are brought in together so that they can make a decision whether or not they're on God's side or whether or not they're on man's side or whether or not they're against God. No, that is well, we are well past that point. This valley of decision is God, when the decision is God's, he decides when to judge, and he's bringing all nations in for judgment. That's who's really making the decision. God is the judge, and he decides when, and he decides who will be judged. Back over in Joel. It says very clearly, and I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. He does not say, I'm going to let them make a decision. I'm going to bring them all together and let them make a decision on whether or not they're going to be judged. Of course they wouldn't decide that. The judgment belongs to the Lord. I will enter into judgment with them. And judgment begins with the house of God, just as it did with the locusts. But listen listen to this, and this is where we see in chapter 3. God will not fail to judge the nations. And here's why. I mean, there's lots of reasons why. One is because he's just, and he will do so because he's just. But he's also going to judge the nations because that is how he will rescue his people. He will judge the nations on behalf of his people. He will judge the nations on behalf of his son, who they have sinned against. And look at verse 3. We see the reason here. We see the reason for the reckoning. Verse 3. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may not drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coast of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also, the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders." They're casting lots for individual lives. Prostitution. They're using boys as payments for harlots. This is in Joel. This is Old Testament. We, we look at the world like, it's, like we're shocked at the corruption of morality. And I think part of that, the reason that we're shocked by it, if you were here for a quipping hour, is because we've been blessed in this country for so long to have a biblical moral standard. But throughout history, 
going all the way pre-flood. I mean, why did the flood happen? Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. This is nothing new. Men are wicked. Women are wicked. They're born in iniquity. And they live up to that. Why? Because there was a curse put on us. And so we see here that, that very wickedness being laid out in front of us. And this is the reason there will be a reckoning. You've sold his people into slavery. And then you can see in verse 4, there will be no retaliation against God's judgment. Anyone that tries, look at what happens. O Tyre and Sidon, all the coasts of Felicia, will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Whatever you try to do against God's judgment, it's going to be turned around on you and probably two and threefold. You can't retaliate against God. You can't retaliate against his judgment. You can't retaliate against his power. And it will be too late at this point to make amends. God will not spare those who have failed to repent of their sins. He will destroy all attempts at peacemaking at this judgment seat. This idea, I think many have this idea. Yeah, I'll just work it out with God on that day. They picture a court case like they can just talk their way out of it with the judge. That time will be past. God will understand. He understands me. Yes, He does. He does understand you a whole lot better than you do. He understands the depth of your wickedness way more than you can ever know. And when you go in that, if you go into Judgment Day thinking God will just let me off because He understands me, you are sorely mistaken. Matter of fact, it's the exact opposite of that. He won't let you off. He can't let you off because he understands you. Or the one, the, 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 yeah, I have a deal with God. Me and him got it worked out. Me and him have our own little thing going. I heard that one several times. No, you don't. No, because what happens when you, when you have that kind of attitude, it's very clear that you have brought God down to your level. And you're thinking, yeah, he'll do it about the way I would. And we'll waver in our judgment. Even as Christians, we waver in our judgment. I do it often. I don't do it on purpose. I try not to. The reality is I do. I'm soft. Why? Because I can see myself doing the same things other people do. I do it in my classroom. Students do things that are obviously against the rules. And I let them buy. Why? Well, I'd probably be the same way. God doesn't have that problem. God wouldn't be the same way. He's holy. He's perfect. He doesn't feel bad for you like I do. But that's what happens. Men bring him down to their level and then they think, well, he'll treat me about the way I would treat somebody. No, he won't. There is no negotiating on that day. There is no making amends. There's no repenting at that point. And listen to this. Man cannot repay God for his sin. We're all guilty of sin. We know that. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through way of the master. 
We use the law, right, to reveal sin. How many lies have you told? How many things have you stolen in your life? What do you call someone who steals stuff? A thief. You're a liar. You're a thief. Have you ever used God's name in vain? It's called blasphemy, right? We use that to reveal man's heart. An amazing thing is every every single person you ever talk to has violated them. Every single one of them. Of the Ten Commandments, they've broken. We're failures. We've broken God's law. And yet, somehow or another, we want to try to repay God for his sin. For our sin. A man cannot do that. There's nothing a person can do to repay God for the sin against him and against his universe. Why? Because it's so ultimately high. We cannot understand God's standards. O. Palmer Robertson said this, To try to repay sin, to try to repay God for sin, he says, it is as if a murderer were to send back remnants of the victim's clothing as a repayment for his crime. And that I don't even think that gets it. We don't understand how high he is when we sin against him, how repulsive that really is. And you notice something else, that when the sinners come... It's like in Matthew 7, they're not pleading for God to show mercy. Look at at Matthew 7. Again, we're looking at the day of the Lord. So Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Look at 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You workers of iniquity, the King James says. What is going on? They're not pleading for God to show mercy. The only plea any human being has ever had before God is have mercy on me, a sinner. But what are they doing? And what are the majority of the people in the valley of decision? Actually, not majority. Well, some of them will just be shaking their fists directly at God. But there's going to be a many in that day that are going to say, Lord, Lord, look at, look at me. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look at this. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We've done all these things. Look at me. That's why he says, depart from me. What are the true believers going to say? Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what the true heart does. That's what the true heart, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has come, the only thing the believer can say at that point when they're approaching a holy God is, have mercy on me, a sinner. By the power of Jesus Christ, I have the ability to approach this throne of grace, but only through Him and never through me. Anything I do, any demon I cast out, Any prophecy I make, any way that I call out to the name of Jesus is only by the power of the Holy Spirit or it is actually not good. We have to remember that. And that's what we see there. Anytime 
anytime somebody's pointing to themselves or their works, they obviously don't understand the extent of their crimes. Have you ever, have you ever been in, in a situation or maybe you've known a court case or, or whatever and somebody has cr- committed this heinous, hideous crime and they just don't understand how bad it is? You're just like, you don't even seem sad. You don't even seem remorseful at all. Well, that is the way anybody that is approaching God with any kind of, I can make amends for this, they don't understand how wicked and evil they are. When someone or somehow thinks they can earn their way to eternal life, it definitely shows that they don't understand how holy God is. And how exceedingly sinful, even the smallest of our sins. Because who we sin against matters. The, the, um, I've heard, I think it's Todd Friel uses the example to try to help, to help us understand this. That who is sinned against makes a huge difference in the sin, right? So he, he uses the example lying. Lying is obviously a sin. It's been, it's been forbidden. It's been very clearly stated that bearing false witness, lying is a sin. He says, now if I go lie to some bum on the street, there's really not going to be any consequence. We're talking about earthly. Okay? So earthly consequence, I lied to a bum on the street. He doesn't know who I am. There's no real consequence, right? So it looks like it's just harmless. If I lie to my wife, probably going to be some kind of, that could cause some problems, right? There's going to be consequence in my life if I lie to my wife. If I go to the Supreme Court and lie, guess what? They'll put me in jail, right? It's called perjury. Why? Because I lied to the highest court in the land. Now, when you tell any lie, this is what we have to understand. Any sin that we commit, even though it's directly against somebody else, it's also directly against God. So when you lie to that bum on the street, you're actually lying to God. You're offending God Almighty, which is way worse than sitting on the Supreme Court and lying. How much higher is God than the Supreme Court? How much higher is God than the president? A lot, right? Infinite. We can't even describe the amount of gap there is. So every sin we commit is like that. It's against God. So who we sin against matters. And so to try to make up for that somehow is actually repulsive. It's actually insulting. And that's why it takes the perfect one in order to make up for our sins, the Holy One, the Christ. And this rejection of repayment for sin occurs on the final day of judgment. It's the final day. There is no longer any chance. Repentance has been been available their whole lives. The judge's bench is not a place you want to stand in the day of the Lord. You can wait too long, right? We see a biblical principle there. The foolish virgins, they waited too long to go fill their lamps, and then they missed the the bridegroom, right? They missed the, the feast. 
And that's where we're standing today. We're standing in a day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. I don't know where everybody is in their relationship with Christ and where you stand. There's been many, many people who have made professions of Christ and they were false professions. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of repentance. It is time to make peace with Jesus because he is your only salvation. He's it. He's the only hope. And your relationship with him is everything. And you don't know when this day is coming. Nobody knows when this day is coming. When the, when the nations will be gathered into this valley, you will have no warning. And you won't, if you're not a believer, you won't even understand it when it's happening. That's why you need to make your peace with God now. Now, look at verse 7 and 8. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off for the Lord has spoken. And now we see God's wonderful mercy again to his people. Those who have been scattered, those who have been sold, those who have been abused, will be returned He's bringing them back in. He's gathering his people back up. After the chastening judgment of his people, which was part of the reason they were scattered, and part of it was for his own purposes, but now they're being gathered back up and redeemed. And this promise includes the restoration of Joel's day that we saw, the restoration of the, what the locusts had eaten, the restoration of Israel, It also includes the redemption brought by Christ at his first coming and the cross. It also includes the regenerative nature of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now we see the final day of the Lord when the curse of sin is totally removed from God's people. So as we see the judgment coming to those who are lost, we see God rescuing those who he has atoned for. And make no mistake, the suffering and the persecution that has been put on God's people for all of these years, for for all of history, will be reckoned. And those people will be punished. And then we see the sin has been removed and the sin nature will then be removed and God's grace and mercy will fully be realized. It will be fully seen in all of his people. And then we see the judgment itself. Look at verses 9 through 11. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Make up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. God will gather them up by calling them to war. He's calling all these people, proclaim it among the nations. All the nations prepare for war. And here's a big shocker. They're going to come. 
mankind has been hungry for blood ever since Adam. Just look through history. It's not hard. Some of the wars we fight are absolutely pointless. Throughout history, it's all about blood, blood lust and taking this and that and power and land and money. And when he says prepare for war, they're going to be coming. All the warriors will come. There's some men that just love fighting. There's some men that just love killing and they'll be there. The men of war, they're called to battle. But it's not just them. You notice that they're going to beat their plows into spears. They're going to take their farming tools and turn them into weapons. Why? Because it's not just the men of war that are going to battle. It's the farmers. Signifying it's everybody. Even the weak and sickly don't get exempt from this one. They're all coming for war. Why? Because this is how God's going to bring them together for the judgment. Now, if you want to see the opposite of this, turn over to Isaiah. Chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, it says, he, will, he shall judge between the nations. So this is, I believe this is talking about the same time. He's going to judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And then afterwards, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Why? Because he's going to put an end to that. There will no longer be a need for war because he's going to remove sin from the earth. He's going to remove the wickedness from the earth. Look at verse 12 and 13 back in Joel. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness. Is great. Anytime there is harvest, there is separation. We saw earlier the sheep from the goats. You're bringing in the, the livestock. You're going to separate the sheep from the goats. When you bring in the wheat to harvest, you separate the wheat and the tares, right? The wheat and the chaff. You got to get that separated out of there. And that's what we see here. He's, he commands us to put the sickle in and harvest the wicked. We see a picture of this in Revelation, chapter 14. Verse 15 and 20. Hold on, let's, let's go verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and the cloud set one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat in the, on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of this earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry, 
to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. When you read this, if you get the imagery here, this is the wrath of God that's going to be poured out. How patient is God? How long-suffering that He's storing up this wrath. And it's a righteous anger. It's deserving people that will receive this. And yet we see His patience and long-suffering as we go day by day, week by week, year by year, and He hasn't poured it out. But there is coming a day when the patience ends. There is coming a day when this wrath will be unleashed. The imagery here is the sickle, the curved knife. Have you ever seen a sickle? About this long, curved knife used to chop, to cut. And He sends His angels to to harvest the wicked... And they'll be put in the wine press. What was the point of the wine press? To crush. And the wine press was devised in a sort that it was round and it has a perfectly fitting press that goes inside it so not one grape can squeeze through. It gets every single one of them and squeezes them until they're nothing but pulp. And the juice flows out. And we see there at the end of Revelation there where the, the, the blood flows like grape juice. Every single wicked sinner will be crushed. Verse 14 through 16, he says, Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion. And don't be fooled because there's going in mobs that individuals will be spared. No, the wine press gives us that picture. No one will be spared. Every person will go individually before the judgment seat of God and required to make a reckoning of things done personally. Every single individual will stand before him and give an account of all he has done. But verse 16, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. He will be a strength for his people. The judgment is nothing for God's people to fear because he will wield his, our opponents, his opponents, absolutely powerless. And then verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy And no aliens shall ever pass through her again. Once again, he's revealing who he is and the power that he keeps going. And Jerusalem will be holy. 
The valley of judgment on the wicked becomes the valley of blessing for God's people. Why? Because it's righteous. It's perfect. And we will all have loved ones. We will all have somebody that goes to it that we wish wouldn't have. That we don't want to see go, go there. But we will be, our eyes will be clear and we'll understand the holiness of God and we will rejoice with that. But the time is now for those people to repent. The time is now for us to share this glorious gospel with them so that they can repent. And God's people will be asked to sit at his right hand and he will be known fully by them. A summons to judgment should terrify the unbeliever. He will be brought into account for all the wrong he has done. But for the believer, the valley of God's judicial decision has been transformed into a door of hope. We stand with no crimes. We stand with no condemnation. And we can't wait. We can wait now. We can wait expectantly to to an entrance of glory. Why? Because we couldn't and didn't have to pay for those, prime, for those crimes. We didn't have to. They're already paid. And at this point, those who don't belong to Christ will not be among us ever again. That's what it says there. There will be no aliens ever passing through again. We will no longer have to wonder who's real and who's fake. We'll no, have to, no longer have to wonder who's who is sneaking in from the back door trying to cause havoc. As a pastor, that's very encouraging. We won't have to stand guard at the door anymore. We won't have to stand at the gate any longer. Why? Because from that point on, it will only be true believers in Christ who are there. And then verse 18, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, The hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of the cake is like the clear and beautiful day after a storm. Right? You ever walk out after a storm? It storms all night, and it seems like the next morning is just that much prettier. The birds come back out, and everything is beautiful. That's what we're going to have here. We see the, re- the, the land once devastated by locusts and famines will be dripping with wine and hills flowing with milk. It's pictures of the land flowing with milk and honey, only this time it's fully realized. It's back to more of a Garden of Eden-like state. It will be a paradise. There will be an abundance of wine and grain. Remember, we didn't even have enough wine and didn't have enough grapes to make wine and enough grain to make bread to offer for a sacrifice. Well, now it will be flowing abundantly. And it says, A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of the Akekias. Psalms 46.4 says, There is a river whose streams shall make the glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. The psalmist and Joel here are predicting the restoration of the rivers that watered the Garden of Eden. According to Joel, this life-giving river flows directly from the house of God. Why, why does it give that? Because the Lord himself 
will be the ultimate source of all the blessings that flow throughout eternity. Revelation 22.1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You know, the sun will not be needed anymore because Jesus is the light. Jesus is the water, the living water that will be flowing from his throne. In verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. The enemies of the Lord will be devastated. They're gone, destroyed, no longer able to bother the people of God, no longer able to persecute the people of God. And the last remnants of the blood guiltiness will be removed. Everything left will be covered by the blood of Christ. Everything left will be atoned for. In the last two verses, but Judah shall abide forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. All the pollutions of God's people have now been cleansed. And this means that there will be no possibility, no possibility of a repetition of the chastening coming back on the land. There will never be another famine. There will never be another plague. There will never be another chastisement on God's people because the, the restoration will be complete. The restoration of the land and the restoration of the people in the land. And God will dwell with his people forever. And so to conclude, we've seen this message go full cycle. Judgment begins with the house of God and repentance brings forth the restoration of God's people. Restoration of the years the locust has eaten is an amazing work of God. Superseded by the outpouring of God's Spirit on all flesh. And this outpouring makes it possible for God's people to stand and withstand the final day of the Lord. When this day of judgment comes, it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that anybody can stand when God's judgment is made complete. And what great hope we find in Joel for God's people on that day. And how we need not fear, but rejoice because Christ has provided our escape of judgment and our entrance into glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. Lord, it's just it's humbling to see all of these events take place. And Lord, I just ask that you would keep this on my heart, that you would keep this on the front of my mind as as I just go forward into the world, that I would remember that your judgment is very real and that there's people out there who don't know you and that you would give me a desire to introduce them to you. I would share this message with them so that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, could work in them. And Lord, I just pray, God, that um, we would all greatly look forward 
to that day that we would greatly look forward to when all things are made right and that you will dwell with us, even physically, forever. In Jesus' name, amen.